Well, today, as you know, is Super Bowl Sunday. So I did get a text. I got this text yesterday, and the text said this. You should be ex as excited about church as about the Super Bowl. So when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. And then it says, be ready. So I'm looking around, and sure enough, someone brought me a bottle of Gatorade today. So it's up here in safekeeping, instead of in the hands of a certain person who will go unnamed, um, that I'm so glad that James Shetler doesn't have this in his hand. All right, so that's where I got the text from. I did respond to his text. This is the only Super Bowl reference you're going to get from me today. I did respond um, to his text, and I said, oh, I wish that would happen, James. It would be kind of different, wouldn't it, get our attention. But then I said, but I don't know that that's going to happen in this sermon. I want to invite you today to think about Jesus and how disruptive he can be. Jesus said disruptive things. That was part of his problem. And perhaps some things in terms of the disruptive Jesus were none more disruptive than these words. He's talking about the end of all things. And he says this. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Well, that's the first group he talks about, the sheep, right? And then the goats, he says. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then here's the disruption. Then they will go to eternal punishment. This, the second group. But the righteous, the first group, to eternal life. It's disruptive. It turns on its head the idea that we just pray a simple prayer and we go to heaven. It's one of the things it disrupts. It disrupts what we think about things like end-of-the-world judgment and those kind of things. And it disrupts this whole idea of who we are in the world and the call of God. Remember, that's what this series is about, the call of God. I came across a thought. I met this thought years ago. Have you ever met a thought and became friends with a thought and just kind of walked with you through your life? Well, I met this thought very early in my ministry, I believe it's probably a paraphrase of something Phillips Brooks said many years ago. But the thought is this. Preaching is not preparing a sermon and delivering that. Preaching is preparing a preacher and delivering that. I think of that often before I preach. Because first, the sermon must be delivered to the preacher. 
So as the Lord preached this sermon to me, I confess to you, I squirmed. So if you squirm a bit, I'm glad I'm going to be in good company. What does it sound like for creation to groan? That's the raw picture that Scripture gives us of this world we live in. Romans 8, we read, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's an image of a world in pain. It's suffering, it's crying out, and it's waiting. It's, it's waiting for something, but, the, but the, the metaphor, the image, is it's waiting for someone to be birthed. Every time I read this verse, it grips me, but... Also what grips me is what is written by the Apostle Paul just a few verses before this. He says in verse 19, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In the midst of an anxious world. Do you see that? That the world is eagerly awaiting to see who the real children of God are. This section of Romans 8 speaks to the reality of our broken world, but it also gives us hope. It gives us hope for the future when Christ makes all things right. I think part of our challenge with that passage, though, is we want to live mostly into the future with it. And I wonder if this is the challenge. Is this, only, is this passage only about waiting for the future, or could this also be about God's children being revealed in the present suffering of our world? So I come back to the idea, what does a world groaning, what does a world groaning look like? I've thought a lot about this. Let me share with you some of my observations. A groaning world looks like anxiousness and animosity and rancor produced by partisan hatred. That's a groaning world. A groaning world looks like a pandemic that has left its mark of loss, loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, loss of deep relationships, disruption of life. It looks like an epidemic of incivility that is unhinged with hair-trigger reactions and venomous rage and a self-referenced focus. It, looked like, it looks like violence and war as an acceptable means of making a point or grabbing for power or seizing or not releasing control. It doesn't take much to think about different places where that's real. It looks like an actual massive divide between the wealthy and the poor. That's just stated reality in many ways. It looks like a humanitarian crisis at borders around the globe where last month 55 immigrants die in a truck rollover and 164 immigrants off the coast of Africa drown in a boat just trying to have the freedom that I have. 
It looks like human trafficking. Like our friend Bonnie Getchell, who tries to help those in Boston who are being trafficked. And it looks like the 40 million people who are still in slavery producing some of the clothes that I wear, some of the products that I consume. It looks like the painful reality that racial inequality does exist. But we have lost the ability and the humility to try to listen and understand. It looks like churches dividing over non-essentials, losing sight of the eternal hope and mission God's called us to, dividing over non-essentials such as masks and mandates, politics and vaccines, while the world watches and says that that's the people of God. Those are the children of God. So what is your first reaction to my observations? Check your heart right now. Check your mind. What are your first reactions? What do you see? What do you hear? If my default reaction is a partisan political reaction based off of the media of my choice. Or if it's just to blame a person, for example, that poor person, they should get a job, they should work harder, they should work better. It's just that kind of response. Or is my first response if it's to be defensive? The question I have to ask myself is, am I free to see what God sees then? Am I going to actually hear God's call first? Can I hear the world groaning? Can you hear the world groaning? Can we hear the world groaning? Is the world looking at me and saying, look, look, there's a child of God birthed into their consciousness. Is this world of pain my possibility to be a witness for the Christ who said, whatever you've done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I am not pretending that the issues I mentioned are not complex and difficult. I'm not. Nor that there can't be differences of opinion on some of these things. But as a follower of Jesus, the first lens to view this world through is the lens of Scripture and the life of Jesus. That's my first lens. Describing a groaning world and our possibility of calling in the midst of it. Christian journalist David Brooks writes these words. The age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissistic self, the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division, a surging mental health crisis, 
and people just being nasty to one another. Millions are looking for something else, some system of belief that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning. And then he writes this, and here it is. Christianity is a potential answer for that search, and therein lies its hope and the great possibility of renewing its call. Right in the middle of all that. This is a series on God's calling. God's calling, now what? That's the title of the series. Two weeks from today, we're going to have the director of the Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission, Lloyd Curtis, here, to share with us his perspective from the rescue mission. Next week, we'll wrap up. We're going to talk about work next week, where you're going to go tomorrow morning, many of you. Some of you have retired from it. We're going to talk about vocation. It's a series on God's calling. As we have established all through this series, from the very beginning, central to the call of God is Jesus at the center of life. Amen? Right? So it makes sense that the very call of Jesus gives us insight into how God works out his call in us in the world. If you recall, he goes to Nazareth. It's the hometown reunion. He goes the hometown hero. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. He picks up the scroll. They hand him the scroll. It's Isaiah he reads from. Picks up in verse 16 of Luke 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's calling. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the text goes on and it says that he rolled up the scroll, he handed it to the attendant. And the, and the Bible says that all eyes were fastened on him. And then he makes this astounding statement. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you would think that what would happen is, I guess this is my second Super Bowl reference, someone would run in with Gatorade and dump it on Jesus. It was his hometown of Nazareth. He's announcing his call to the world. And everything is great. That is, until he actually points out that he is serious. And as you read the text and he goes on and he, and he talks about the world he's trying to reach, he starts talking about the people that others, including some of the most religious people there, were pushing away and the broken and the outsiders and the poor and the powerless and the sinners and those who are considered a lesser race. The ones on the margins. Those who were considered less than. He said those were the ones welcome to his embrace. Scott Sauls describes them as the messy, costly, and inconvenient masterpieces. I like that. The messy, costly, and inconvenient masterpieces, namely the powerless and the poor. In that day, children were powerless more so than ever. Powerless and poor. And Jesus said this. Jesus, come on, don't be so disruptive. He said they are the heirs of the kingdom. So in response, what did they do? They tried to kill him. 
They took him to the edge of the hill. And that's what can sometimes happen when we become serious about hearing God's call in the worlds of pain. In the world of pain. But also this. Also this. And I appreciated what Jamie shared at the start of this service. I didn't know he was going to share that. Thank you, brother. Often, our sensitivity to the world's pain begins with our own pain. Pain. Recently read about Peter Chin and his wife, Carol, how they faced several years ago her cancer diagnosis. You may have seen the article. It's called Blindsided by God. Just Google that. Peter Chin, Blindsided by God. They got this diagnosis, and in the middle of it, the insurance company dropped their health coverage as a pre-existing condition. And the, the diagnosis was called the young woman's killer, the type of cancer she had. The world they expected God to give them was pulled out from under them. Have you had that happen? But he said he learned God never makes promises that we will escape heartache and suffering, and he doesn't. In fact, Scripture tells us it's part of life. But he does promise us this, the psalm that I usually recite most nights. Some nights I don't get through it, but I usually recite Psalm 23 when I go to bed at night. In verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of darkness, the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For the Lord is with me. The shepherd is with me. And Pastor Chin writes this. We see that God does not promise to shield us from the valley of the worst, the valley of mourning and persecution and cancer. He promises only that when we encounter these valleys, he will be right next to us. And he goes on to say, to tell of the many ways God was faithful. And he does. He lists the many different ways. But they weren't spared their pain. I've reflected on that a lot. Reflecting on some of my own pain. You have pain. You have distress. You have struggles. Why? You know the age-old argument that says if God is such a good God, why do good people suffer? You know that argument? Why? We often just kind of reserve that just for God, not for other things, so there's a great inequity in that argument, but but I wonder, could it be that one reason God does not withdraw us from suffering while drawing near to us in the middle of suffering is so that we become more like Jesus to the world? Here's what I mean by that. We are the people, and some of you today have this, some of you have a cross around your neck today. We adorn our buildings with crosses. We send cards and notes that have crosses on them. We are the people of the cross. We are the people who serve a Savior who was redemptive with his pain. So could it be that our pain is to be redeemed to bring his grace to a groaning world? The Bible teaches that, you know. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You know what that blows up? That blows up the whole me and Jesus thing. I'm just going through life. It's just me and Jesus. It blows that right up. It blows up this idea that church and, and, and religion is just about consuming. It blows up the whole idea, the notion of, I have my spirituality. It blows all of that away. It blows up the idea that all it is about is for me just to kind of get my little fix once a week. This is about receiving from God, the, uh, Gary Batilier's favorite word, shalom, receiving from God, the shalom of God, the wellness, the wholeness, the salvation, the goodness, the grace, the glory of God to us through Jesus Christ, and then that coming out of us to the world, a troubled, broken, harsh, injured, sin-soaked, self-absorbed world, that we then become comfort somehow to the world. That's what the Bible teaches. Because of our encounter with the living Christ. C.S. Lewis famously said this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain shatters the illusion that all is well. I so appreciate the rawness of that comment. You see, mostly we view this quote through the lens of personal pain and how in the middle of it, God meets us and we find our way to God in the midst of our pain. And that's honest and that's true. But what if we took that quote and thought about the pain of the world? What does the pain of the world have to say to me about God's call? What is the pain of the world shouting to me about the call of God on my life? How does God want to rouse my heart where I am deaf to his calling? And maybe, sometimes, maybe it is my personal pain and sorrow and heartache that, is, that God wants to redeem in my life. Remember, he's redemptive with our pain because he was redemptive with his own. And maybe what he wants to do is rouse my heart to the pain of the world and get me off of my self-reference. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to do something about that guy that I have trouble with. Every morning I shave him. And I look at him in the mirror. I said, oh, man. And speaking of future glory, Jesus gave us a word about present reality. Future glory always impacts present reality. That's, Christians live in a future time zone. That's where we live. We believe Jesus is going to redeem everything. He's going to make all things right. Death does not win, sin does not win, war does not win, greed does not win, abuse does not win, suffering does not win, Jesus wins. That's the story we believe. We live into that. But future glory always impacts present reality. That's the way the Christian life works.
So Jesus gives us a word about present reality as he's talking about future glory. He gives us a word about this groaning world. We began the sermon with it. It is the statement of affirmation to the sheep who are well-pleasing to God that in it contains the call of God to us in a groaning world. You know it in Matthew 25. I would invite you to read the whole section. But this is what we find. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I've never had that problem. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Do I ever think about those people in Liberia that I met that didn't have enough clean water? I was a stranger, and you invited me in. So what about that Democrat or Republican that you despise? And welcoming them in. Or the stranger who's just completely unlike you and unlike me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. When I checked this morning, I had no problem figuring out what to wear other than the colors. I had no problem figuring out what to wear. I was sick and you looked after me. What about those health care providers? I have family members, one most notably, who is thoroughly, completely, utterly exhausted and discouraged. What about them? They're more than a news headline, aren't they? I was in prison and you came to visit me. What about those people on death row who they're really not supposed to be there because they actually didn't commit the crime? That's more, that's, more, that's more prevalent than it should be because getting it wrong once is wrong. Right? Think about that. These aren't political statements. These are statements about looking at the world through the lens of God. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you, we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Yeah. Not saying none of that's not complex. Not saying that. But these words force me to look at the world's pain through my greatest joy in life. Jesus. Jesus is the greatest joy in my life and in your life, I'm sure. But these words cause me to look at, they, 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 they capture me to look at my life and my world and the pain of my world through my greatest joy. Jesus. Mother Teresa said this, whenever I meet someone in need, it's really Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Somehow God's purpose calls me to bring the best of what I have and what I am in life. Jesus himself. Jesus is the best of what I have and what I am in life. To bring that to meet the worst of what the world encounters. So whatever Jesus has done for me in the best of what I have in life, I need to bring to the worst that the world 
encounters. We'll revisit Frederick Beekner next week when we talk about vocation. But this favorite quote of many sits deep, must sit deep within me. The place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Or as the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, put it, he said, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Here's what's interesting to me about those three quotes, Mother Teresa, Frederick Buechner, Bob Pierce, three different strands of Christianity, all saying the same thing. These are more, though, than pithy quotes, inspirational sayings. They invoke No, that's probably not a strong enough word. They confront within me, me, questions. Have I encountered Jesus in his most distressing disguise? And how did I welcome him? How did I welcome him? In what ways have the blessings of my life been offered to the deep hunger of the world? Who wants to have their heart broken? I don't. But what breaks the heart of God that is breaking my heart? You see, we declare, and we sang it earlier, God and God alone, we declare that we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord of all. We worship him as such. We believe every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen and amen. Alpha and the Omega, amen. We worship this Savior and Lord. We pray that at the start of this service. But we equally worship this Savior. He was despised and rejected a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This Savior, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And the famous words of Paul in Philippians 2, let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Any true worship of God inevitably results in turning us upward. But not only upward, but outward. Looking at the world through the eyes and the heart of Jesus. To actually be broken by the world's pain rather than to culturally critique it, politically criticize it, or personally rationalize it. Because my default is typically one of those. So the question that this all asks me is, how is it that others, through my poverty, though I am rich through my poverty, willingly giving up what's, how God has made me rich, how is it that others through my poverty might become rich? Is my life making others rich? Yes, and some of that is materially or monetarily, but 
In other ways, too, how is my life making others' lives rich? I know I probably have made more lives poor than I want to admit, but how is my life making others rich? So I come towards the end of this message and I come in confession to you. I wonder how broken I am by what breaks the heart of God. I'm wondering that. I sometimes wonder if I shut out the megaphone of the world's pain. Shut it out. Sometimes it just seems too much. I wonder if I'm fully offering the deep gladness of my life and the blessing with it to the world's deep hunger I'm really asking myself these days that am I so focused on my own comfort and convenience and desire to consume that I actually miss the world's deep hunger? And I ask myself, how am I embracing the messy, costly, and inconvenient masterpieces? Namely, the powerless and the poor. Because the desire and the temptation is to hang out with the powerful and the rich. Not casting any negative light on the powerful and the rich, not at all. But Jesus, if I'm truly centered in Jesus, requires me to ask this question, these questions. If I'm honest, and that's one thing I learned in homiletics, is you're supposed to be honest in sermons. If I'm honest, I often want to turn away. I want to try and forget about it. I want to hide from it. I think that's one of the wonders, if you want to call it that, of things like a web browser or social media post or an entertainment option in this individualized narcissistic culture of ours that Brooks called it. With just one click, with just one move, I can move on to something or someone else I would rather read or hear or watch or listen to. But somehow, in the world's pain, is the voice of God. And I don't know what he might be saying to you, and I said to you at the very start of this, is that I think this is the sermon he's preaching to me. You just get to listen in on the sermon God gave to me. But what is God saying? Worship team, why don't you please start making your way to the platform. The story is told about Mother Teresa, and you could imagine what questions Mother Teresa would have been asked, right? Who would pick up a man whose body is being consumed by worms and love and care for them? That's what she did picked up a man, cradled him while his body's being consumed by worms. The question that people would always ask Mother Teresa is this, why would a person do that? 
And that was the question, why? And in response to it, she would often grab a person's hand and she would tap one finger at a time and she would say, you did it for me. You did it for me. Brandon Vogt writes this, the secret to her infectious joy and boundless compassion was that in every person, every person, every paralytic, every leper, every invalid, and every orphan, she recognized Jesus. Do I recognize Jesus? Do I recognize Jesus? Do I recognize Jesus? Do I recognize Jesus? Do I recognize Jesus in every person? What did you hear from God today? The world's pain is calling. What will be my response? God's calling. Now what?